Hey there, thanks for watching the Young Turks. I'm Brooke Thomas and tonight we are talking a couple of different things. We're gonna jump into a US congressional race and we also are gonna talk about charts and how they lie to you. Let's get started on tonight's show. First up we have Alberto Cairo, the professor of visual journalism at the University of Miami. Good evening, professor, thanks for being here. Hi Brooke, thanks for having me. I am so excited to talk to you because I hear you're excellent at breaking down what we're looking at when it comes to charts and graphs. And not only that, but how often they deceive us, right? Yes, correct, yes. Um, we, we sometimes, or quite often actually, we take the charts that we see in the media and in news media at face value, right? Mm -hmm. We see maps, we see graphs all the time, and we tend to believe that they embody science and objectivity. And what I try to do in the book is basically help people understand that charts are powerful and they're very important, but they need to be read carefully. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about some of those charts specifically because I wonder if you know people first start hearing us talking, then they're like charts, graphics, mm -hmm. infographics. It gets confusing, but we can get very specific because you have a fascinating piece that's almost like a game that you click through in the New York Times about how often people mm -hmm. misinterpret hurricane forecasts, right? Yes, it happens I, I, a lot. I, I live in Miami, so <laughs> I'm really worried about people not being able to read those hurricane maps that um, the National Hurricane Center puts out uh, so often, right? Um, if you want to envision how those maps look like, they look like cones, right? There's uh -huh. a cone in the center of the map that is supposed to show you where a hurricane may go. And what we know through the um, through research that has been conducted throughout the years is that many people, the first time that they see that map, they interpret that cone as if it were representing an area that is under threat. Meaning that if you're inside the cone, you're in danger. If I, you are outside of the cone, you're not in danger. And what I explain in the book and also in that New York Times piece that I wrote a while ago is that that's not what the cone is representing. The cone is basically representing a set of possible positions of the center of a hurricane in the following five days. And the center is the key word in there because obviously a hurricane is an enormous object. Mm -hmm. So even if you are outside of the cone, the possible path of the storm, even if you are far from the outskirts, from the boundary of the cone, you may still be affected by the hurricane just because a hurricane is enormous, right? So yeah, there's a lot of science behind that and it's a long explanation. Um, but I think that is worth it because once you are explained how to read that type of map, which is also a chart, you bet you're able to read it better later on. So why do you think it is that people read them wrong so often? That so many people do this? Well, it is because I'm not blaming readers. I'm uh -huh. not blaming people. It's like the problem is that we tend to approach maps, graphs, charts representing information as if they were just images, like illustrations, right? And they are not. They are arguments made visual or visual arguments. Therefore, and they have a symbol system that represents information and a grammar that basically dictates how the information should be arranged on the display. And if you want to understand how a graphic works and what the graphic is actually showing, you need to know how that grammar works. That's why it's so important to explain, for example, how to read the National Hurricane Center cone. Because if you're not explained how to read it, then people will not be able to interpret it. And this is true of any kind of chart, by the way, even bar graphs. I mean, many people don't remember, but when we are when we were in kindergarten mm -hmm. or in or in elementary school, we were taught how to read a bar graph. Just because it is not obvious, it needs to be explained. But the, the teachers in the classroom were explaining to you the grammar that explains or that helps you interpret that graphic correctly. 
So my first thought when it comes, especially when it comes to weather, right? When it, we're talking about hurricanes and these graphs that we, we see these often during hurricane season. And my mm -hmm. first thought is that if they are misinterpreted so often, why aren't they drawn differently? You know? <laughs> well, yes, I've looked into that with a group of colleagues from the University of Miami and even people from the National Hurricane Center. And it's actually harder than it seems. Uh -huh. We have tested several alternatives to those maps and all of them are open to misinterpretations. I have grown to believe that the key is not perhaps the charts that are used, but how those charts are presented. One of the reasons why hurricane maps are a, a misunderstood so often is that, for instance, TV newscasters that present those charts and that explain where a hurricane may go sometimes misinterpret the cone map themselves, ah. and therefore they end up they end up explaining it wrongly to their readers. I remember being during Irma in Miami, and if you remember, Hurricane Irma was originally predicted to go over Miami, and everybody in Miami started you know, closing up the shutters and installing plywood, etc., uh, including a friend of mine who had recently moved to Miami. And suddenly the cone of uncertainty of Irma started moving towards the west coast of Florida. It ended up landing you know, in Naples and in, in, on the west coast of Florida. And my friend, so the cone was already moving towards the west, and my friend in Miami started relaxing a little be saying, well, perhaps we should not be that concerned. <laughs> I said, no, that's absolutely right. not how to read the code. No. You need to be careful with that. <laughs> I, I want to talk about but your book. Is, your yeah. book is, is titled How Charts Lie. Uh, what mm -hmm. encouraged you to write this? Well, the 2016 presidential election, uh -huh. uh, that, that's the short answer. Um, although I have been collecting examples of charts that are either, either misleading on purpose or often misread. Right, so that I, I try to combine and to alternate between these two types of uh, charts that lie quotation marks in there, in the in the book. But it was during the 2016 presidential election and the and the campaign. Uh -huh. So it was the election that convinced me that there was a need to read. Oh, sorry, to to write this book. Uh, the the example that opens up the book is the a county level. A, a map of the results of the 2016 presidential election, which is often used by President Trump and his supporters to say, we won on a landslide. They are using it these days, by the way, probably you have seen it. They are displaying the county level map, tons of red and a little bit of blue, and they are overlaying impeach these or try to impeach these, meaning that take a look at the amount of red on this map and how little blue there, there is, meaning there's a lot of support for President Trump and there are very few Democrats who are in favor of impeachment or independents who are in favor of impeachment. And obviously that's misreading the map because that map is not showing popular support. It's just basically showing the amount of territory that was, that was won by either party in the 2016 presidential election and the fact that Republican vote vote tends to spread spread out over you know sparsely populated counties makes that map look like there's a lot of Repu there are a lot of Republicans in the country when the truth is that the United States is basically a 50-50 country and so uh, something that you know is we're here we're talking about like how charts lie and essentially how like people easily misinterpret these photos essentially that you see um, when it mm -hmm. comes to different stories. And I started thinking, I wanted to ask you, you know, are they ever drawn intentionally? And of course, oh, yeah. you know, you, you give me a perfect example there. They're used intentionally. Do you ever see this outside of politics? Oh, yeah, yeah. It happens, it happens quite a lot. So it happens, for example, with a marketers, right? Uh -huh. If they want to, if a marketer wants to convince you, for example, of um, how good their product is. 
Um, they may, for example, show you a bar graph comparing the quality of their product uh, in comparison to the quality of the product of their competitors. And they may, for example, cut off the vertical axis of the bar graph to exaggerate the differences between the bars. And I have a few examples of that in the, in the book itself. But more often than not, and this is something that I warn about in the book, charts are usually not intentionally created with the purpose of, dece of deceiving people, to deceive people. What happens more often than not is that our cognitive biases, in particular, our tendency, our, trend to, our, our cognitive trait of projecting what we want to believe onto the things that we see every day, lead us sometimes to basically misread charts in ways that confirm our pre-existing opinions. We uh -huh. call that the confirmation bias, right? And I have tons of examples of that in the book as well. So what do we need to look for? What do we need to take note of? Let's go back to election and politics. What do we need to take note of mm -hmm. um, to try and oh, yeah, help we... ourselves read these <laughs> things correctly, regardless of what information is kind of being pushed at us? Yeah, so how charts lie, actually the title could have been, you know, perhaps it would be a less catchy title, but the title could have been how to become a better reader of charts. <laughs> That's basically what the book is about, right? So first of all, you need to look at where the data comes from. Or so what is the source of the data? So if a chart, a map, a graph, an infographic, whatever, is presented to you without quoting the source, mentioning the source, distrust it, period. Right? <laughs> the, chart should, the chart should disclose where the information comes from. And then if you have a minute, you know, it can take you a long way to understand a chart better if you can take a look at the primary source. Uh -huh. And I have examples of how to do this, just to make sure that the chart is actually showing what it claims to be measuring, which sometimes doesn't happen. So we need to be careful with that. We need to look beyond the chart. Second thing is that we need to ask ourselves whether the chart is distorting the information in any way. Uh, for example, the bar chart that I explained before with a truncated axis that exaggerates the differences between the bars. We need to ask ourselves, for example, also whether we are seeing in the chart what we want to see, right? Whether we are projecting. So we need to be careful and apply a mantra that I repeat a couple of times in the book that says, that goes, um, a chart shows only what it shows and nothing else. Everything else that you see in a chart is often what is going on in your brain, not in the chart itself. So we need to control, to curb that impulse to project what we want to believe onto the on, onto the chart. And then, you know, just a few other things such as, you know, is the chart showing the uncertainty of the data? Because data is never absolutely certain, right? The, the numbers that we see in the media, right, polls, for example, right? This candidate is going to get 45% of the vote. This other candidate is going to go going to get 44% of the vote. And the media will claim this candidate, 45%, is ahead of this other candidate, 44%. And it may happen that the uncertainty surrounding those two numbers, called point estimates, those two numbers, is so wide that you cannot really claim that one of, one of the candidates is ahead of the other. Right? Even if it's 45 and 44, the level of uncertainty around those estimates may be too large. So my takeaway is like the best way to, to start reading charts better is don't look at it quickly, right? It takes some time. That, exactly, exactly. That's exactly the first, the first advice, piece of advice that I give in the book is that one of the, the things that we need to do as a society, I think, is to convince people and start cultivating what I would call a culture of attention. And again, in the, in the case of charts, we need to abandon the myth that, for example, a picture is worth a thousand words. That's not true. Because that may lead us to basically, again, take a look at a chart and, and assume that we are interpreting correctly. When more often than not, that's not the case. You need to stop yeah. and actually read it 
Because charts are not meant to be seen. They are meant to be read if you want to interpret them correctly. So attention is critical, yes. That is great. Alberto Cairo, professor of visual journalism at the University of Miami and author of How Charts Lie. Thank you so much for being here with us this evening. This was a fun Thank conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, we'll be right back with Keena Collins, actually a US congressional candidate out of Illinois. Stay with us. Hey there, welcome back to the conversation. I'm Brooke Thomas. And next up, Keena Collins is actually joining us, US congressional candidate out of Illinois' seventh district. Keena, good evening, and thank you for joining us. Oh, my goodness, Brooke. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So tell our viewers first up, I always ask, why are you running for Congress? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So um, for 22 years, we've had the same leadership. And for 22 years, the cost of living has risen. Healthcare has become super unaffordable and our wages have remained the same. Um, I think that we can be doing way better as a party. The messaging can be way stronger. And for me, the 2020 elections are about a return of representative democracy. Um, and that means uh, transparency, accountability and putting working class families first. So the, we have a clip here of your campaign announcement and there's something you said in it that I wanna ask you about. So first, let's take a look at that. When I was seven, I saw a child shot and murdered in front of my home. I knew the victim, I knew the shooter and ending gun violence in this country has fueled me ever since. My father is a factory worker. My mother, a crossing guard and certified nursing assistant. Both of them are union strong. Organizing is in my blood, from protests to policy. When we shut down Chicago fighting for justice, we exposed corruption and forced City Hall to clean house. Saying that the candidates who stand behind me are the best and the brightest. When the rights of women and girls were under attack in our country, I co-authored civil rights legislation in Illinois to protect them. Powerhouse women that not only changed Illinois policy, but and I did not back down until we won. Now, we're taking the fight to Washington. We need leaders who will reject corporate money and take on difficult political fights with the urgency that each and every one of us deserve. So I wanna go back to that moment you said when you were seven years old, what happened there? And then also tell me how you think that shaped who you are as a candidate, who, who you could be as a congressperson. Yeah, so um, they were teenagers from my neighborhood, from mm -hmm. my block. And um, I'm from the city of Chicago, which is about 85% of the district that I'm running in. I was born and raised in this district, Brooke. And so um, I have the battle scars and the triumphs that have come um, along with growing up in a marginalized co community in the Illinois 7th Congressional District. But these were just two teenagers from my neighborhood who somehow thought that the conflict resolution that they could have was by uh, gunning each other down. And it changed the entire trajectory of my life. Um, I went to, through Chicago Public Schools K through 12. I became an anti-violence advocate, worked with the violence interrupters, and then uh, went to school at Louisiana State University, where I became the Louisiana Regional Organizer for Gun Violence Prevention and Criminal Justice Reform through the Center for American Progress. And essentially, you know, um, all across the country, I want to say that my story is unique. But 21 years later, and there are more seven-year-olds, uh, not just in the city of Chicago, but across the country, who are watching their friends and their neighborhood, uh, child, children in their neighborhood get gunned down too. 
And so that brings up a question that I have, and I always think about this, and I want to ask someone who's from Chicago. Absolutely. Um, how national media and even sometimes the president, how and specifically the South Side of Chicago, and how it's spoken about, and how it the narrative around that. And sometimes I watch it and I think that that's not all Chicago is. On one hand, these stories need to be reported and something needs to be done about this. But I think you get this idea that there are people just sitting around okay with it. And what are your thoughts when you see? how these parts of Chicago are spoken about nationally. You know, it's extremely frustrating because the uh, people who are boots on the ground are black and brown residents, mm -hmm. particularly and namely black women and brown women in these communities who are on the front lines. They are uh, getting the resources, crowdsourcing from the community because we're not getting the federal resources or the state resources that we need for mental health facilities, for looking at this as a public health epidemic. And so it is frustrating. And that was an impetus for my run. And actually, my campaign color, one of these signature colors on my campaign is orange because I'm a gun violence prevention advocate. And I want every GOP member and I want the NRA and every corporate dem to know that I'm coming for that seat. And so um, it, it's just to say that we need a return of representative democracy and we need the voices of those people in those communities speaking to uh, what's happening. Now, what's interesting is Donald Trump in particular would love to talk about the city of Chicago and the violence that happens in Chicago. But we know that Illinois has some of the strictest gun laws in the country. And uh, what he did was select Mike Pence as his VP pick, and Mike Pence was the governor of Indiana. Well, 85% of the guns illegally trafficked into Chicago come from Indiana. So, you know, if we're going to talk about the violence and, and the guns that are on the streets, where do you think we got the guns from? And so we need wide sweeping reform, but we also need restorative justice practices and stop looking at this as through a punitive lens mm -hmm. and more of a restorative lens. Can we talk about um, Illinois Council on Women and Girls Act? Am I right that you co wrote that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in 2017, Donald Trump uh, got rid of the White House Council on Women and Girls, which was an Obama era policy that was brought up um, or headed by Tina Chen, Valerie Jarrett, and Mrs. Obama. And it essentially forced federal agencies to look at their uh, policies through a gender lens. And so once I found out that it was eliminated on the federal level, I came back. I traveled to 68 counties out mm -hmm. of 102 in the state of Illinois. And um, I co authored House Bill 5540. The Illinois Council on Women and Girls Act, which protected the rights of the transgender community and non-binary community, centered the voices of women of color and working class women, and expanded reproductive health care and education. This was paramount in Illinois because we had no idea that the heartbeat bill was going to come uh -huh. or that the Georgia bill or Ohio bills were coming. And so um, I built a really strong coalition. We threw down. I took on the GOP. I took on a billionaire Republican governor in Illinois, and we won. And it is a living, breathing law now in Illinois. So I want to talk more about you as a candidate. So let's try to get to some issues. We'll do like a rapid fire. Where do you stand on Medicare for all? Um, I support Medicare for all, single payer Medicare for all. And my job before I announced was serving as a national organizer, mm -hmm. organizing doctors and medical students around uh, Medicare for all. And that's also something that I think I've seen you talk about. You had to like forfeit your own health insurance to run for Congress, right? Absolutely. So once I decided to run, um, I had to become a full-time candidate, which meant that I couldn't pay COBRA. I couldn't afford any of the uh, premiums that were available. So, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yes. Who can? Let's talk about criminal justice reform. You you touched on that a little bit uh, a second ago. What what needs to be done? Yeah. I mean, it's a long list. But. Yeah. 
Yeah, so number one is that um, in my district in particular, and many districts that look like mine, um, there's a decriminal, uh, decriminalizing, uh, or we need to decriminalize poverty. There's a criminalization of poverty. And so we see people um, who are addicted to um, heroin or crack cocaine or um, different substances who have been thrown in jail and not given the treatment that they need, right? And so um, I believe in ending cash bail bond. I believe in looking at restorative justice practices um, as a means to come to a solution for criminal justice reform. Um, obviously, I don't believe in, in charging children as adults. I think we need to completely abolish capital punishment um, across the country. And um, I think that we need to also be looking at reentry into society. We need to restore the rights of individuals who have served time fully. And we have seen that that's been the biggest problem once folks come out of prison, they're not, um, all, their full rights are not restored. You've also talked about the need to stop the influence of dark money in elections, right? Tell me more. Yeah, so um, during my time at PNHP, which where where I was serving as a national organizer, um, organizing 20,000 doctors and medical students around single payer Medicare for all, we would do power rankings for um, congressional leaders who took the most big pharmaceutical money and big private insurance money. And lo and behold, my congressman, the incumbent, Congressman Davis, had uh, he was at the top of the list of taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from corporate PACs, big pharma, and private insurance. Now, this is important because in our district, um, we have the largest life expectancy gap in the country. So in a wealthy portion of our district, you the average life expectancy is about 90 years of age. If you travel a nine mile radius to the south side of Chicago, which is also in the district, mm -hmm. the life expectancy drops to 60. So it's a 30 year life expectancy gap just based off of your zip code. And wow. we know that it's not enough for politicians to stick their political flag in the ground and say they support Medicare for all, but you're taking money from corporate PACs and big pharma and private insurance companies who don't care if we live or die. And so for me, um, our campaign is 100% not taking any corporate PAC money, um, no private equity money, no money from the gun lobby, obviously. And um, we're 100% people powered and grassroots. So I wanna read something that I found in a, in a piece that you wrote in Al Jazeera, and I want you to break it down for our viewers. When the closest to the pain are closest to the power, the US will experience a true transformation. Yeah, you know, um, that piece was written, and I actually have an uh, op-ed piece coming out through Teen Vogue about how Democrats love black women until it's time to elect us. And so for me, um, it, that is not the impetus for my run, but representation does matter. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if we're talking about a party who says that we are the backbone of this party, then why are you not investing in uh, the pipeline to elevate black women into leadership? And so that's an issue that you know I have in my district as well. Um, my state rep, my city councilman, my Cook County commissioner, and my congressman are all men. That is not representative democracy, and that is, and we could be doing better as a party. And so um, that Al Jazeera article was just talking about how black women, we're, we're tired of being everyone's martyrs. We need to be elevated into leadership. And you know we're, we're gonna try our hardest to continue to push that envelope and that message um, in this primary. Keena Collins, thank you so much for being here with us. You are running for United States Congress in Illinois 7th District. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Brooke. All right, that's it. For the conversation, I feel like it always goes by so quickly. Thank you for having me and thank you for watching.